This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Rachel Withers, contributing editor to The Monthly and columnist, joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. Next up, I spoke with director Jennifer Pedham. Jennifer joined me to talk about her new film, River. River is an epic cinematic and musical reflection on how rivers have shaped both the planet's elaborate landscapes and human existence. The film explores how humanity's fortunes are intrinsically tied to rivers. The film is the sequel to the 2017 documentary Mountain and reunites the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti, narrator Willem Dafoe and writer Robert McFarlane, alongside new collaborators William Barton, Johnny Greenwood and Radiohead. Then, finally, writer James Bradley joined me to explore a personal and cultural history of swimming. Our conversation is based around his essay, Full Body Immersion, which has been published in the Sydney Review of Books. And my first guest for the program is Rachel Withers, who is returning to chat about all things federal politics. Rachel is contributing editor to The Monthly, and she has a column on weekdays called The Politics, which you can check out on The Monthly's website. Uh, It's always linked through to um, from Rachel's Twitter page, I should say. So you should follow her on Twitter to keep up with what she is tweeting and writing about. Uh, But uh, without further ado, I welcome Rachel back onto the program. Hi there, Rachel. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you going? Not too bad. Yeah. It's a bit like that, isn't it, with um, (laughs) all that's happening in politics at the moment. And it's kind of odd because not a lot is happening and yet lots is happening. So um, it's one of those weird moments, I think. Yeah, it's like we're in an election campaign, obviously, but we're not... um, we're going to see hardly any parliament between now and the election. We're just going to keep sifting through this mark, I think. Mm. And we should note that the um, federal budget is going to be delivered in a week's time. So um, that's going to be happening next Tuesday evening, and that is when parliament will be getting back together probably for the last time uh, before the election because, yeah. as we know, it has to be held um you know, in May, presumably, and Scott Morrison is running out of time to really call the election, isn't he? Yeah, well, it's expected he's going to call it straight after the budget. Um, and it, 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 the word is it's going to be the 14th of May, but it can be any time up until the 21st of May. So it's probably going to be called straight after that budget. Mm. And I think that's why some people had speculated perhaps that Scott Morrison had got a bit angry with Daniel Andrews, um, apparently, quote unquote, like sabotaging, uh, you know, the coalition's election prospects by scheduling Shane Warne's state funeral on the day after the budget, which might take the wind out of his sails. It's an interesting allegation, that one. Yeah. Um, I. I'm not sure that it's totally implausible that that's been done, but I I don't think it's a good look making the allegation. No, it's not. Absolutely not. Um, But it is interesting about the timing of the election being called because, as we know, this federal budget is going to be full of delightful cash splashes, as we've already heard, and uh, the Coalition has been suggesting that they would, um, you know, cut or reduce the tax on beer uh, which would somehow potentially trickle down and pass on to consumers at pubs. 
um, but also that we would potentially be getting $1,000 per person just because the coalition are feeling particularly generous and despite the uh, huge amount of debt that they've racked up uh, giving out tonnes of money through JobKeeper that wasn't actually necessary. So I'm interested in that uh, element um, of budget night coming up and just how much that is going to be, you know, the election platform. Yeah, I think there's certainly going to have to be something in there to address address cost of living pressures. I mean, that's the, the thing we're really talking about at the moment and that's what the budget has to be seen to be addressing. Um, we're hearing things like you mentioned about a cash payment, probably to low and middle income earners, um, things like cutting the fuel excise, which is something that the coalition said for ages and ages that it couldn't do and would actually make things worse. And uh, arguably that, that was a compelling argument, but now the politics seems to have shifted. So they're floating all these different things that will be, you know, a short-term sort of like uh, boost for people's for people's budgets. Um, nothing particularly structural or long-term, you know, I think we're seeing things like discussion of this $1,000 payment, but not, you know, increasing uh, welfare payments or anything, anything mm. long-term, like it's much like, I suppose that pay rise we saw, sorry, that bonus we saw for aged care workers, which supposedly, uh, aged care workers are actually struggling to access, but it was a bonus here, have this bonus around the time of the election, but not an actual structural increase. that's going to address these rising costs that are not one-off rises. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously housing affordability is another example that just keeps on becoming an issue or staying an issue, I should say, uh, and both parties struggling around that. It is um, also very interesting we should mention uh, that over the weekend there was a significant event, the South Australian state election, and the polling around that election had suggested that Labor would do very well and that the incumbent Liberal government would be turfed out after one term. Uh, that did occur, but it seems that even the polls were perhaps um, on the Conservative side and that Labor really has done particularly well in South Australia. And we've seen not only Labor politicians but many pundits trying to assess what the implications are of the South Australian election for the federal election. And I wondered what your take on it was. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty classic what we're seeing um, with Labor claiming that this is, you know, that it does have federal implications, the coalition claiming it doesn't. Uh, it's very standard after a, a state election or a, or a by-election. Um, I think one thing we definitely can take from this is, as you mentioned, the polls were right, um, which is, you know, we, we've had a a sort of distrust of the polls following the 2019 election where they were so very wrong. Um, there's been work done by the, the polling groups to, to change their methods to try to make sure they're actually, uh, you know, speaking to the people they need to be speaking to. So one thing we can take away from the South Australian election is that the polls were right. It doesn't mean they will be again, but, but the polls were right. And the other thing is, um, the big one is that whatever sort of cloak of incumbency was protecting governments uh, when it came to elections in the pandemic is now finished. Uh, the the um, Omicron outbreak in South Australia played a big role in that loss. Um, people say it was bad timing uh, for the South Australian government or, you know, 
it was also bad decision making. But Omicron arrived just as they opened up, and they got hit in a way that a lot of the other states that um, had been living sort of free of COVID this whole time weren't. Um, and then their health system came under real pressure and, and you know, they, they suffered quite a few deaths as well. So um, it what we see is that, you know, voters are going to punish governments that they feel didn't respond appropriately um, in the pandemic and there's no longer this idea that we should just stick with the uh, the government that we have. I'm so sorry about my dog. <laughs> <laughs> She's become famous on radio again. <laughs> um, now, we should also mention news poll because... Um, the they did come out again in on March the 13th, the news poll for the federal uh, election, and it was particularly interesting that after all of this floods crisis that's occurred and once again the Morrison government essentially uh, bungling that response, waiting far too long to do anything, and then when they did do something, do it, um, in a very lacklustre way, in a very half-hearted way, and in a pretty much um, uneven way by distributing and um, allocating funds to more so to New South Wales than to Queensland and even in New South Wales to give it to some electorates and then not to others, uh, which many were very upset by. We've since seen some backpedalling on that in New South Wales around the funding because of all of the outcry and even an upper house uh, an upper house liberal uh, resigning over it and saying that it just wasn't right. So it's interesting to see that, you know, this floods crisis may have had an impact uh, in the polls potentially. And, I mean, it does seem that way. The polling is looking bad and continuing to stay bad for the Liberal Party in the sense that Morrison's approval rating is... Um, approve 41, disapprove 55, and it's the approval rating is going down. Um, we've seen the two-party preferred vote, um, the Liberal National Coalition at 45 and the Labor Party at 55. So that's a big 10-point um, gap there. Obviously, in 2019, that was the supposedly unlosable election for Labor, no one wants to make that assumption again, but it does seem that the polls are quite um, strong and that the kind of level of ability for there to be error must be smaller this time. Yeah, the, the, there's also the fact that even if there is an error, this uh, this gap is so large that even with a margin of error, even quite a large margin of error, it still looks like uh, Labor would be um, the victors here. I think there's also um, a lot of seat-by-seat -seat analysis going on. That's being done more by the parties, but you often see that sort of um, creeping out in different articles from different um, columnists who have access to that data. So, you know, on Wednesday we saw Nikki Sava sharing some internal polling, you know, seat-by-seat -seat where uh, we saw that it was looking, you know, bad for the government in particular seats in Western Australia, for example, um, which is, you know, going to be a really important place for them to to hold on to seats. Um, so, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of different polling going on, a lot of different analysis, but whichever way you spin it, it's looking pretty bad for the government. Yeah, and they're not only under threat from Labor, they are also under threat, key politicians are under threat by and from uh, independents, particularly women at the moment, and a lot 
of uh, these independents have been noting the interesting choice of branding that some of the politicians have been using, including recently Josh Frydenberg, who started to use teal in his branding, not the traditional liberal blue, um, clearly a, a nod to the teal that's being used by so many of the women independents at the moment, and also even in seats like... Um, those that Dave Sharma um, is in and also Tim Wilson, we're seeing more and more Liberal politicians removing the Liberal logo, removing references to them being part of the government um, and even changing their colours to be similar to their political opponents. I mean, that is also quite a significant development in the sense that you know, they're actually trying to muddy the waters and, I guess, confuse people and distance themselves from Scott Morrison. Yeah, it's it's so bizarre, isn't it? I can't quite wrap my head around the use of the teal. Mm. Uh, you know, I wonder if they're trying to troll their opponents or, um, you know, like, as you say, muddy the waters. But one of the key arguments that these uh, moderate Liberals put forward is that by being part of the Liberal Party, by being part of a governing party, they can actually, actually achieve things. You know, this is... Um, what people like Tim Wilson in Goldstein and Dave Sharma and Wentworth really say is that they've been able to push for things like net zero from the inside, you know, independents are so ineffective, whatnot and whatnot. But, um, you know, now they want to portray themselves as sort of these like independent or, you know, unaligned figures. Ultimately, at the, at the end of the day, though, you know, the Liberal Party is going to be on the ballot paper when people go in to vote. That's what's going to be next to Josh Frydenberg's name. That's what ne what's going to be next to um, Dave Sharma's name. So I I just can't understand what they think they're doing with this, this teal thing. Um, yeah, perhaps people will, will be confused when they get their, their uh, flyers in the mail, but they're only going to be seeing more and more teal, which surely can't be good <laughs> for the Liberal Party, which is traditionally blue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think... Um... Yeah, lots of people have pointed out it's not really the smartest marketing strategy that they think it is potentially. So uh, we will have to wait and see about that. But um, one other kind of odd politics um, moment in the past week or so was seeing the kind of descent really into almost like, I guess you could call it bullying, um, where Scott Morrison had... Um, criticised Anthony Albanese really for his weight loss, suggesting that it really made him seem inauthentic and that he wasn't, um, you know, his real self. And, it, and this came after, uh, I think it was an interview on 60 Minutes um, that Anthony Albanese did looking, you know, very dapper, apparently in a nice suit and an open collared shirt and a kind of fancy glasses and and then we saw Scott Morrison saying well I'm still wearing the same glasses and the same old suit so I'm just uh you know authentic scomo um I mean what is your take <laughs> on this really bizarre uh scenario that that's saying you know someone denigrated for getting into better health yeah I mean I think I think that was a real political misplay by Morrison he was in a really friendly environment that that evening he was on Sky News and I think he just started sort of mouthing off and no one's quite sure who he thinks he's appealing to with this this dismissal of, of health and and somebody trying to take care of themselves. Um, it's also completely 
disingenuous because, as people pointed out in the following days, Morrison himself had lost weight after he took on the leadership um, and, you know, it likes to exercise and likes to to talk about swimming every day. Um, but I, I really laughed there when you said, you know, I'm the authentic ScoMo because I think that was the bit that really got me um, is that authentic ScoMo is such an oxymoron. Like this is somebody who made up a nickname for himself uh, that was sort of based on the the Albo type Australian nickname. Mm. You know, you read books about Morrison and nobody remembers him being called ScoMo before he created this particular brand that he's created um, of this daggy dad, Aussie bloke, goes to Bunnings. Um, and so, yeah, for him to be, to be levelling an attack on someone else over authenticity while partaking in a Sky News forum that was actually called the pub test, it just had layers and <laughs> layers of irony. Um, none of it passes the pub test. You know, I think perhaps in 2019 people bought this this ScoMo character, but people are seeing through it more and more. Um, you know, and that doesn't mean that he, he couldn't still win the election, but the idea that he is the authentic bloke here um, and that, Anthony Albanese, who's been known as Albo for a really long time, uh, mind you, is is inauthentic because he bothered to lose weight after a, a near-death accident. Um, is just bizarre. And it it really, you know, it didn't play well, this attack. Um, my the, the editor of the monthly, Nick Fike, he actually, after I wrote about the pub test, uh, I think last Tuesday or Monday, he I saw him tweet that, um, you know, Morrison's political instincts just seem to be going haywire at the moment. You know, he is mm. just grasping onto things that he think. You know, he loves to 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 land an attack, and I feel like he just grasped onto this this cake glasses suits thing from Albanese's sixty Minutes interview, um, and it was just a really a real misfire from Scott Morrison there. Yeah, pretty. Yeah, as we've said, bizarre. It's, it's hard to <laughs> find words Things for how bizarre it is. getting really weird, aren't they? <laughs> they are very, very weird. Um, also weird but very understandable is that a number of uh, residents from Lismore in New South Wales actually dumped um, a lot of their flood-destroyed uh, possessions at the Prime Minister's house to make their, I guess, grievances and unhappiness known uh, in terms of the Prime Minister's response to the floods crisis, um, delayed response, I should say, and that's an understatement, uh, and also the fact that the um, the weather forecast does suggest that there will even be potentially more flooding coming in the next um, eight days if that does still continue and um, come to fruition. So, you know, this is an ongoing issue, clearly, um, and that people in the country in areas of New South Wales and Queensland are very climate aware. Um, they are concerned about future floods, even as of this week and, and the coming weeks. Um, and that this is an issue that Scott Morrison seemed to also bungle in the sense of his very odd photo opportunities, his um, decision to supposedly uh, respect the locals by not meeting them out in public, whereas others had suggested that this was a way to avoid uh, another handshake disaster, as we've seen in the bushfires. Uh, I wonder what your thoughts are now that we've had some time to reflect on the floods crisis and 
all that's come from that and the kind of um, backflips we've seen from the government on some of the funding issues as well? Yeah, look, I mean, that stuff about Morrison not meeting with people, um, you know, meeting with people in private and and then not meeting with with constituents who wanted to meet with him, they were, were lined up to meet with him, was, was just ridiculous. Um, and I think that day was... Um, you know, in all the efforts to avoid another Cabago, another Black Summer type look, we got basically that in a, in a different way. Um, and I think you saw that anger with those res Lismore residents yesterday coming to Kirribilli and dumping their, their flood-damaged belongings in front of his home and saying, please, like, look at us and talk to us. Um he just, he doesn't seem to get this stuff and, and it doesn't seem like he actually can do the things that these people want him to do. Um, the flood response, he keeps insisting, you know, we couldn't have, we couldn't have done enough. It's just impossible, which was just a, a huge insult when, when at that stage they really hadn't done enough. Uh, maybe it's true to say that no amount of support after something like this would make people feel great. But, uh, you know, people deserve, you know, the, 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 there's a government there to help people after things like this, and it didn't. It held off. It, it seemed to wait until Scott Morrison could be there in person after his COVID isolation before actually, um, you know, taking big drastic steps. Um and ultimately what this government can't seem to do and what Scott Morrison can't seem to do is pivot on climate change in the way that this event demands and in the way that these residents are demanding. You know, today we've already seen, I've, I've only just glanced at this morning's headlines, but it feels like every day since then we've had another ridiculous announcement on climate. You know, last week we also saw um, the government sort of celebrating the overturning of the court's ruling that they owed a duty of care to children on climate change. We've seen um, we've seen new dams that are to support mines. We've seen changes to laws to allow the fast tracking of mines, um, and just everything they've done since is just doubling down on this this wrong direction to what these floods are demanding. Um, and ultimately, I think that's the really sad story that's coming out of this. And that's why those people want to dump their stuff on on his doorstep. Yeah. And we also did see the um, the decision from the courts around uh, the environment minister who appealed the decision um, that they, she, Susan Lee, has a responsibility and a duty of care to um, the children of Australia to prevent climate change from advancing and accelerating. Uh, and we saw the court essentially overturn um, the ruling that said that the minister did have a duty of care. So uh, the government clearly was pursuing that in the courts, didn't want mm -hmm. to have a duty of care, which, you know, that in in and of itself is quite shocking. Mm, it's just it's just shocking at any time, but after that devastating week of floods, and it's it, it wasn't a devastating week, it is still devastating. Mm. You know, the situation on the ground there is still really awful. And for, for the government to be doing these things at this time, it's it's just it was it was really it's really depressing. <laughs> yeah. If I can and, say that. And tone deaf, you would have to say. Yeah. 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 Um, now let's also talk about what has been making headlines across 
every newspaper and media outlet because it seems that it, it needs addressing. Um, and that is the sad passing of Kimberly Kitching, who was a Victorian Labor senator. She was 52 uh, and died suddenly of a heart attack. And obviously that is, um, you know, a very shocking and sad thing. And it's something that happens not just to senators, but to everyday Australians all the time, as we um, saw even with Shane Warne, for example, you know, just before mm -hmm. uh, Kimberly Kitching as well. Um, and doctors had obviously uh, weighed in and said that, you know, all of the kind of risk factors that can contribute to these things start years and years in advance of, of, an, of an event like this happening. And obviously we don't know why it's happened. Um, and, and a lot of people, you know, upset might be kind of looking at this and reflecting uh, on the situation. But unfortunately, we've seen it escalate from being a tragedy to something that has been used really as a political football um, not only within the Labor Party, but also between Labor, the Liberals and Nationals, uh, the mainstream media. Uh, and now we are seeing really a, a very disturbing, I think, development in the way that um, we're reporting on women, on, um, you know, a senator's death. So I wanted to unpack all of these issues with you, Rachel, uh, so that I think we can get down to what is the substance of the situation and get past uh, all of this speculation. Um, but I, I wanted to also read out a tweet that I had read from someone I had on the show just a, a few weeks ago, Joe Dyer, who's running for the seat of Boothby as an independent mm -hmm. in South Australia. And I think she certainly summed it up um, for me, but you as well have. And she said, no one is saying the factional games played in Canberra aren't hard and nasty and the late Senator Kitching wasn't distressed by them. It's the way they have been directly, immediately and currently baselessly linked to her untimely death that is so distressing. So with that, Rachel, could you explain to us how we got to this point from um, hearing of Kimberly Kitching's death to uh, then hearing of allegations of bullying uh, to then progressing onwards to this uh, bullying being disturbingly linked to her sudden death? Yeah, well, I think this all really started the very next day. Um, we had Bill Shorten, the former Labor leader, who was a close friend of Kitching, who was actually there at the side of the road waiting with her husband after she died. Um, and he sort of very, very emotionally and genuinely said something about, you know, he he pushed her into politics and he sort of wondered if she'd have been better off never going in there, that she, you know, he didn't he didn't lay any allegations, but he, he basically suggested that, that the cut and thrust of politics had maybe contributed to her early death. Um, then we started seeing reports about her pre-selection being under threat, and that was actually already in the media. Um, her pre-selection and Kim Carr's pre-selection in the Senate uh, both under threat because of factional politics. Uh, Kitching wasn't um, very popular in her party um, that much. She also wasn't popular when she was first appointed either, when um, Bill Shorten was really pushing for her to take Stephen Conroy's seat in the Senate. She um, wasn't a popular choice. Yes, yep. And I think, and you, you saw some really awful stuff about her from News Corp, the, uh, the media organisation that's now lionising her after her death when Bill Shorten tried to appoint her. Um, so she was, she was, you know, a very, uh, she's she from the unions. She, you know, 
she she was controversial. She was a captain's pick. Um, she went in there and she did, you know, she really had some strong values and she really worked across the aisle and, and did some some good things in there. But she was becoming increasingly unpopular. Uh, her faction is shrinking in influence. Uh, she had been accused of, of leaking to the other side uh, some rape allegations that we probably shouldn't now speak about because they're um, before the courts, but those controversial rape allegations, she, she leaked those to Linda Reynolds, supposedly. Um, so, yes, her pre-selection was under threat. Um, and then last week we saw the Australian run a report declaring that um, Kitching was being bullied by the mean girls of the Senate, referring to Penny Wong, Christina Canelli, and... Um, um, Sorry, Katie no, Gallagher. Katie Gallagher, sorry. Um, and so, yeah, really this this piece that was, um, again, implying that um, this had been the cause of her death. Um, now, I think it's really, really important that we call that stuff out. Um, the links between whatever was going on, whatever is alleged to have been going on um, with this factional stuff and with this political stuff um, hasn't been proven to be the cause of her death. And, and this is a um, really vicious sort of campaign to turn a death and some allegations and to link them and to, um, to, to imply that this killed her. And I think it's really important that that's called out. And, yeah, the other thing, the other thing that's being done here is um, people are taking this very complex story of um, some some factional stuff and, and a pre-selection being hung over someone's head uh, and some disagreements uh, in the in the Senate that I'm not sure we've heard both sides of yet. Um, they're being used to claim that uh, Labor has a women pro problem, that, that women were bullying women and therefore um, Labor, you know, should take a good hard look at itself and how dare Labor have, have you know, politicised things that the coalition had done last year. Um, and this is this this line just seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. There's something really appalling today comparing or, or, or putting side by side the, the kitchen story and and the story of, of Hannah Clark, who was murdered by her estranged husband, um, implying that these are both um, issues that need to be talked about if, if we're going to move things forward for women in Australia. And I think even if um, Kitching was being bullied and and we don't know that um and it's a really complicated story with so many agendas and so many people making anonymous allegations um i do believe we should look at those by the way but i think attempts to pretend that um that's the same as misogyny and that's the same as this you know systemic undermining of women in politics in society is just really really gross and it's being done by people who just just do not care about women's issues at all, mm. you know. Um, even if, even if Hitching was being aggressively bullied, and and we don't know that, you know, that does it's not an issue of misogyny. It's not it's not an issue of, um, you know, sexism. <laughs> no, and I think people people want to use it to just be like both sides are the same. Uh, you know, everybody, all the all the parties are gross, and I, I think that probably all the parties are gross. But um, <laughs> to to claim that what whatever was going on with Kimberly Kitching was 
misogyny is just so disingenuous. And I'm not sure... Um, I understand why certain journalists are doing it, but I don't understand why so many journalists across the board are now are now chime, chiming into this particular line. Yeah, it is. it feels like a bit of a tidal wave of coverage because pretty much almost everyone is taking the same line just with di- differing degrees of extremity um, and, you know, following on and, and reinforcing the idea that, um, these bullying allegations may be true um, when there really isn't any substantive evidence to prove them. Um, and also that, I mean, another thing that's come up and that came up last year was that the culture in politics and at Parliament House in general is toxic mm-hmm. and very bad, obviously. And and that's the case, as you said, across all parties. Um, factional politics when it comes to pre-selections is brutal um, and that's not a new thing and, uh, you know, we haven't seen other um, politicians die from a, a pre-selection battle. So, I mean, we've got to be very careful about where you draw links and lines between things because, um, you know, making those connections is quite concerning um, but also that it seems that the media and also the Liberal National Party um, and even some people within the Labor Party who are kind of um, playing this up seem to be playing up the simplicity of it and the fact that the public don't really understand how factional politics is played out and how it has played out within the Labor Party and how that um, may be actually what was happening at the time as opposed to potentially bullying. And, of course, there are, you know, blurred lines um, and we're all kind of speculating here, but it is disturbing that that these kind of things are being reported as facts uh, and that it kind of seems to be being used as a bit of a campaign to derail uh, the Labor Party and particularly Anthony Albanese's leadership at the last point just before an election is called. Yeah, and I I can understand why uh, certain elements um, within the coalition are doing that. I can't understand why um, people within Labor are doing that because um, we can see that, that this is coming from inside and outside. Um, I think that there was a really interesting point uh, in Kitching's funeral yesterday that, that's worth taking note of, which is that Bill Shorten stood up and I think everyone was waiting to see what exactly he would say um, because it's his faction uh, that Kitching was part of and that is under threat and is potentially going to lose this Senate spot now. Um, And he did stand up and say um, that what Kitching would have wanted was for for everybody to to come together and um, be taking down Scott Morrison, not Anthony Albanese. Um, And so whatever it is that... uh, Shorten may have done or or not done here. Uh, he was seemed to be putting out a message to those within the party who are seeking to wreck the place from the inside that that that's not what Kitching would have wanted. And that's something I've been trying to think about a lot. What is it that Kitching would have wanted? Um, and and I don't profess to know, um, but I don't think the way this has been done has been in any way respectful to her memory. No, absolutely not. And that is really what it comes down to is respect for another human being um, and their memory and also their family as well. 
and their friends. And one thing that um, the ALP has done and that particularly the leadership had been saying is that we don't want to talk about this um, in public because, I mean, she had, hadn't even had her funeral as of until yesterday. Um, so the response from Anthony Albanese and um, even from the three senators, female senators who'd been named as supposedly um, the alleged bullies, uh, had not really said much until very, very recently, um, including a statement um, that the three had put out. So I wonder if we're looking at just the politics of this um, as well as obviously the human part of it um, and the Labor Party's current strategy, do you think that this can continue, this level of, I guess, silence um, that they've had in response to the kitching allegations? And, you know, how do you think this could play out um, politically? Uh, I think it depends what the media decides to do, ultimately. Um, the coalition is probably likely to keep hammering this. Um, we've had... Richard Miles come out and say that the party will be reviewing its culture in an ongoing way. That probably won't be enough to satisfy people um, or, you know, the, the critics who are prosecuting this in the media. But ultimately, with the way that it's been handled so far, I'm not sure that a, an inquiry or a, a quiet internal inquiry is going to be handled respectfully either. Um, I think the yeah, the, the best thing to do uh, would be to have a respectful, quiet inquiry and to look into what happened here. And I think um, everyone in politics probably should now be thinking a little more about how they treat one another um, without jumping to the conclusion that Penny Wong killed someone. Um, but, you know, I think I think this is yet another opportunity to look at the culture, but to do it without you know, viciously slandering and bullying people. Absolutely. And you did quote Kimberly Kitching yourself at the end of your um, column from last week when you said um, that Kimberly tweeted in 2018 when there were reports of um, bullying issues within the Greens party, she had wrote, written on Twitter, every party has internal drama, but you can't solve a bullying saga with more bullying, uh, which I really think should be the final word on that um, mm. because it really just says it all. Mm. Yeah, and I, I wanted to, to, you know, who knows how she'd respond to this one, but mm. um, I think that more, more bullying and, and that's what's happening right now is really not the answer. Yeah, yeah. Rachel, it's been great to chat with you and to get to the heart of a lot of these matters and also to try and unpick what is going on in Canberra and uh, what's happening in the lead-up to this election. As you said, we are technically not in an election campaign, but we are. So <laughs> it's great <laughs> to chat with you and to, to talk about all of these issues which are very critical in the sense uh, that we're going to see a new government elected, whether that is keeping the incumbent or um, potentially seeing a Labor government or even a hung parliament, who knows? Um, but it is very important to democracy that we talk about these things. So thank you so much, Rachel, for taking the time to chat with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Amy. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. And I'm delighted to welcome back onto this show Jennifer Peedham, who is a director, a film director, in fact. She has directed many films, including some that you would definitely have seen. The last time I spoke with Jennifer, we were talking about her film Mountain, which uh, we were discussing in 2017. And Jennifer is also known for her film Sherpa, which is another fantastic movie. The film that Jennifer is going to be discussing with us today is called River. It's being released through Madman and it has been both written and directed by Jennifer Peedham, also written by Robert McFarlane, the very well-known British writer, and it's also been uh, co-written and co-directed by Joseph Nazetti. There's a beautiful film score that goes with this film with a number of contributors, which we'll get to the, the details of those contributors, but one of the headline contributors is Richard Tognetti, who's the artistic director of the Australian Chamber Orchestra and is also a composer in the film. And this movie, River, comes out pretty much now. It's uh, released on March 24, and I'm very, very pleased to have Jennifer on the line here with me. Hi there, Jennifer, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Amy. It's great to be back. It's really lovely to get to talk to you about a film that I have absolutely enjoyed and also a film along similar lines to Mountain in its style and approach. And uh, I was interested in reading the notes that it's actually forming part of a trilogy. So this is the second film, uh, Mountain being the first. So I'm excited to hear that there may be a third. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Look, maybe a little way off, but um, that's the plan. I like things going in threes. <laughs> <laughs> it does have a good ring to it. And uh, why would you, you know, stop when you've got such a good thing going? And I think that personally, um, we were just talking off air about Mountain. And, and I mean, I certainly am happy to admit that Mountain is one of my favorite films that I've ever watched. And I continue to rewatch it over and over again. And uh, part of that is because you feel so transported and you feel this closeness to the subject, whether it's mountains or in this case, rivers. So I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about the style of these films firstly, uh, given that the subject of the film are these kind of all-encompassing huge features of nature, huge subjects of nature. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably impossible to separate the way that these films came about in the first place, which was that Richard Tongetti from the Australian Chamber Orchestra actually approached me to collaborate and sort of commission this work that became Mountain, both the concert and the movie. And, and it kind of dictates to a certain extent how you make these films because you're not making a normal documentary. There's very little, if any, dialogue in these films at all. And they really are musical and cinematic odysseys so that they are big movie, big screen movies. The, the, the cinematography is sort of world-class and then the score is another huge part of it. And so it, it kind of dictated the way that we made this film because you can't have a lot of talking in a movie where there is an orchestra playing a concert at the same time. So I think that explains something about the way these kind of projects began. Um, and I think, you know, to be totally honest with you, the success of Mountain surprised us all. You know, I'd just finished making Sherpa, um, which had, had kind of really hit a global audience and, this to me was like a, a, a chance to do a, a kind of really small experimental 
creative work. It was like a little bit of an artistic side hustle and it ended up outperforming Sherpa at the box office. And I was really surprised by that. And I think maybe the reason that it worked is that it, it is such a different experience. It, it's a reason to go to the movies. It's something that you really need to sink into and watch on the biggest screen possible. And it takes you to another time and it takes you to another place. Um, and I think hopefully it causes you to think about the natural world and the world more generally and the human impact on the world in a different way. So that's kind of the aim, I guess. Yeah. And certainly with both of these films, one of the other common denominators in addition to the Australian Chamber Orchestra is the writer Robert McFarlane, who I had the pleasure of chatting with about Underland, his uh, most recent book. And when I caught up with um, Robert, we were bonding over our love of Scottish mountains. And I know that you are also, you have a great love of mountains. So I was wondering and wanting to ask you if you could reflect on your working relationship with Robert and how that started but also evolved across these two films yeah well look I mean he's just such an important part like I talked about the cinematography and I talked about the music and then the third element to that is Robert's amazing writing his words and and then obviously the voice of Willem Dafoe but when when I first started to to make Mountain what kept popping into my head I hadn't yet decided whether that film was going to be narrated or not and what kept popping into my head was this book that I had read back when I was doing a bunch of mountaineering in my early filmmaking days called Mountains of the Mind. And I went back and and had underlined all those years earlier all of these passages that kind of attempted to explain why people would risk their lives to, to climb a mountain. And really that's what that film was exploring and it just felt like it made sense to get in contact with Robert and I, I had to go over to London for the, the, the London Film Festival where Sherpa was screening and, and I, I reached out to him and luckily he, he answered my email and I, I jumped on a train and went down and saw him at Cambridge where he lives and works and we just had the most amazing kind of two-hour meeting um, in his office, which is just piled high with books. And um, and yet he could go to any one book and open it right to the right page and find a particular passage that he wanted to share with me about some other amazing author who'd written something about mountains. And so it was a, it was a wonderful first meeting and it's been a, a friendship that's grown and we've seen very little of each other. I've only actually seen Robert in person one other time. Um, that was when Mountain screened at the Barbican uh, with the Australian Chamber Orchestra in London. Um, we've had this wonderful friendship that has just been such an important part of the creative element of, of these films. And so when we came round to to going again, which we wanted to do with the Australian Chamber Orchestra and, and it was Robert was just a, the first phone call I made really to see if he would be interested in in exploring this and, and we began to talk about what we would do next, why we would do it. And he 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 really felt that this film needed to be more urgent than the mountain was. And and we talked about the idea that you know mountains are far less vulnerable to a harm than, than rivers are. And you know and, and so it began, you know, one of many conversations and the entire collaboration took place over over Zoom and mainly in the COVID lockdowns, but it was just a, a really wonderful experience. I can't speak more highly of Robert McFarlane. He's just one of the loveliest people I've ever had the pleasure to work with. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Lovely and warm and kind and, and <laughs> generous. Yeah, and passionate and and highly, highly intelligent and very, very talented. Mm, and exceptionally articulate. Exceptionally. I know. I wish he was here today. He, he's uh, much more articulate than me. I pretty much underline everything he writes. It's just so poetic. It's so beautiful and understated, but it says enough. It says just the right amount, I think, in this film. And Robert, I know in a previous interview when he was reflecting on this film and it relates back to what you've just said about the damage that's done to nature and to rivers in particular, Robert had reflected that, quote, any writing about nature now cannot really think outside the shadow of menace and damage. It has to take account of that as well as wonder and hope. And it seems that that's what this film is doing, is that it's having all of those elements. It's talking about the early creation of rivers and their meaning to earth, but also to humans, but then also how humans in the Anthropocene are shaping rivers. So I wanted to talk a bit about that before we jump into some of the film production elements um, to reflect on some of these human geoengineering feats that are both massive, but also very destructive as we find in this film. Yeah, I mean, there is a beautiful line in the film that that says we have become titans capable of shaping our world in ways that will endure for millions of years to come. And it it is so true. And and one of the great surprises to me really was understanding the extent of the damage that our attempts to control water and to control rivers has had, um, you know, both the diversion of water but also the damming of rivers and, and, and again, an amazing line, again, he's just such a poet, but dams achieve what should be impossible, they drown rivers. Mm. And it's, it's, it's so true. And so dams actually become a very important part of the story and, and these big infrastructure projects are happening across the world. And, and dams have been obviously being built in infrastructure for, um, you know, over 100 years now, um, but in the developing world, up in the Himalayas, in Africa, um, there are some seriously mega, uh, in India too, in seriously mega dam projects that will have fairly devastating consequences, downstream consequences to the lives um, of millions and if not billions of people. Yeah, I really loved that quote about how they drown rivers and it's true you get that sense when you're looking or watching that archival footage it's so kind of amazing to see how humans and their interaction with rivers have been both evolving but also remaining the same in different ways. And I was really shocked to learn, and this is a quote from the film, the grandest dams have impounded so much water that they've slowed the rotation of the earth, yes. which, I mean, doesn't it say it all really? Yeah, so Robert calls a gong strike moment. It, it um, yeah, when when we learned that fact, and and in actually the the specific um, dam that that had a measurable impact at the moment of inertia, they call it, was the Three Gorges Dam. But I think the filling of any dam, and and they are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, it did actually have a measurable impact on the rotation of the Earth, um, which goes to show just how much water we're displacing. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's a, an extraordinary fact, isn't it? Yeah, the day is a microsecond longer. It is really astounding to think that humans have that much impact and then it's not that surprising when you think of all the destruction that we are causing and there's a whole range of elements to this one part of the dam story 
is the concept of sediment and it providing that nourishment to the banks of the rivers, to crops and soil, and also obviously rivers and them being able to flow fully and freely is also crucial to preventing things like algal blooms, which also comes up in the film. And we see those fish kills and fish deaths in the Murray-Darling River. That's another really poignant part of the film, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was something that I really hadn't fully understood, this idea that the the dam wall traps the sediment and, you know, as a result of that, the floodplains and the deltas are no longer nourished by the silt and the water that that is discharged that we see going over the top of the dam when they do a big release is stripped of that sediment. And so that dammed water, um, it flows faster, it cannibalises the banks of rivers it causes the whole thing to go faster. So it actually has a devastating impact. The river's running deeper and less wide and the implications of that to our ability to grow food is something that I just had never really thought about before. And so it's, it's really changing the whole way that rivers flow. And another, you know, really excellent quote from the film is that the power grids, not the seasons, determine the river's flow. Uh, and the energy that dams generate often fail to reach those who need it most. So you also bring in the inequality elements to this story and the disparities that exist when humans start to intervene because there is always a cost, but it also means that burden of the cost is borne by people who are less fortunate. It's always the way, isn't it? And and this is what, you know, is particular concern for me in what is going on and up in the Himalayas and, and the big massive dam projects that are being planned up there and and the you know as you said the the power you know is not necessarily reaching the people that need it um the power is going to the bigger cities the power is going to fuel other big mining projects and infrastructure projects and not actually reaching the people but the environment their immediate environment is completely impacted by that um and that is the case also in some big dams happening in Africa on the Nile, um, I think in Ethiopia and and all around the world. And I know that um, there have been 39 countries, I believe, depicted in footage in this film, which is really amazing to see. And when you're watching this film, you are sometimes wondering where exactly is that river or, you know, what kind of society has clearly cherished rivers in a spiritual sense, which is another theme in the film. But I guess the beauty of this is the fact that it transcends across cultures and that our connection to rivers really extends back thousands and thousands of years, as this film points out, and it still has this ongoing centrality to the lives of many, including people, for example, in India. And you show, you know, some of the rituals in India in, I think it's the Ganges. Yeah. So I wondered if you could reflect on that, the cultural and spiritual elements that you include in this film. Yeah. I mean, there's this lovely line that says to those who live and die by the river, their river is the river. Um, And one of the things that we realised when we were researching this film and settling on, you know, the topic of rivers more generally was that there are more books and literature, poetry, movies with the name river in their titles than than any other landform. Um, We humans seem to have a very particular sort of spiritual relationship or loving relationship to rivers and that that applies to people who still 
revere the river as a, as a god. Um, and to those of us who don't, there still seems to be an instinctual understanding that this um, running water is is essential for life. Um, and so we were sort of it was important to capture that idea both for countries like um, India, where there are very you know well known rituals to do with rivers, um, and but just also to to the impact that um, this idea of soothing, the idea that rivers can heal and console and purge, that they they seem to mean so much to us, Um, yet, you know, we're not really doing our best by them. Indeed. I was reflecting on when I was watching this film, there are a number of gorgeous shots that almost seem abstract because they're aerial shots of the earth looking down and you can see the rivers as these kind of veins that are running through the landscape. And they almost look like in many cases, a tree of life. Mm. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that cinematography and that footage that is so artistic really, and what you were kind of trying to do with that and, and what you were hoping to do with the different types of cinematography you were using. Yeah. I mean, we, we deploy all sorts of different techniques in this film drones um, are obviously a huge part of it and and drones drone cinematography is really um, you know that the technology has has come a long way just even in the number of years since we've made mountain and some of that work was um, you know was actually from photographers drone photographers that took these stills that um, when you first look at them, you you think you're looking at a painting. You're not quite sure what you're actually looking at. And then some of those images that you're referring to that look like trees and the tree of life, I mean, it is amazing how these patterns replicate themselves in nature and you can really only see that and tell that story of rivers from above looking down. And in, in this case, we decided that it was important to go even higher again and, and we we reached out to a photographer called Benjamin Grant, who was actually collaborating with NASA and other satellites, um, space satellite companies, um, to collect photography, mainly focusing on the human impact from from space. And he had some beautiful images. I mean, the NASA library is freely available, but you really need an expert eye to know when to even get in there and where to look. And so we worked with him and we put together time-lapse photography from space to tell the story of the human impact on rivers. So that whole section, um, uh, well, the, the time-lapse from space was really a, a, a chapter of the film that we call Greed and the other section that we call the, we actually call it the art sequence because it is actually a moment to just reflect on the beauty of rivers across landscape after having been through a, a fairly tough place in the film um, I think it's after after the dam sequence so just to reflect on on the beauty of these landforms and, and rivers and landscape yeah it does provide that visual relief and a kind of mental space for contemplation and as you say this place to enjoy and appreciate the wonder of of rivers and that is one of my favorite parts of the film definitely and one of the others uh, was the drone footage from, I believe it was Dutch cinematographer Ralph Hogenberg, where you were just basically like flying down from, I think it was a glacier as it melted through to where the river begins. And it's just this really high speed, kind of almost feels like a bit of a roller coaster ride, but it was quite 
enthralling to have that experience as a viewer. So I wonder if you could also share with us a little bit about that, because it does seem like a very different part of the film in in the sense of the tempo and the technology and the way that it's used. Yeah, and it's used at a point in the film where we haven't yet introduced humans. That particular drone pilot, really talented young guy um, who finally goes by the name online as Shaggy FPV. And we really, we met a lot of these young guys when we were sort of realised we weren't going to be able to get out and shoot as much as we wanted to, who are just, they specialise in this one thing and they fly these drones and they fly them fast and they fly them with a technique called proximity flying, which means they get as close as they can to the ground or the rock wall or whatever it is that they're, they're filming. And they're just highly skilled pilots and they crash a lot of those drones and they have good insurance I think um, and in the case of um, Ralph he he actually wears a like a 3D sort of headset and he, it's like he's almost playing a video game and he's controlling the drone with a like a joystick and you know so we actually found his um, his footage and, and and he like a number of the other cinematographers that we ended up working with were really just thrilled to be involved in the project. Um, many of them had seen Mountain and, and it spoke to them in the way that it sounds like it spoke to you and they were just really keen to be involved. So that, that became an unexpectedly unexpected joy of, of making the project, just the enthusiasm with which these young guys were just so keen to contribute to this story and and meant that we could include work like that. And, and that particular shot that... Um, you're talking about is um, Richard Tongetti um, paired it and he was really keen to, he, he's a huge Bark fan, Richard, um, he, you know, and he, he really wanted to to use Bark in the film and he, he had this particular violin concerto in mind and I had actually put another piece of music there and was like really hanging on tight to it because I loved it so much and this particular piece of Bark needed to be, rearranged and and all sorts of things to fit to this particular shot um and he went off and he rearranged this Bach violin concerto into this orchestral rearrangement and it is you know it is one of the most extraordinary pairings of, of Bach to any visuals I think you'll probably ever see it is quite extraordinary and all performed by this incredibly talented orchestra the Australian Chamber Orchestra. I'm glad you bring that up because that comes to my next question. And it also goes to that point that you're making about collaboration, given that I heard in one of your uh, interviews that you were saying that pre-production began around the first week of the lockdowns around COVID. So clearly, you know, collaboration was a necessary part of it and maybe became even more essential given the restrictions that were involved. And, And then you've had all these wondrous happenstance circumstances and and things that may not have been part of the film that then did become part of the film like uh, Ralph's work as we were just discussing but then there's the ACO obviously and Richard Tognetti and the others who he's worked with and you've worked with on the music in this film and um, obviously there are those uh, rearrangements of the kind of classics by Vivaldi and Bach that you've mentioned but then there's also original works as well one of the ones I I remember writing down was Water which was really beautiful and a live uh, recording on the soundtrack and of course Radiohead as well that final song is just absolutely stunning it really does make you get teary I think I certainly teared up watching it and hearing it yeah well um 
so water, the, the piece that you, you just mentioned there was um, actually commissioned by the Australian Chamber Orchestra of Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead. So they, they already had this existing relationship and had commissioned this work called Water. And so, you know, we were able to access Water for River, which worked beautifully well. And then as a result of that relationship, we were able to use that particular radio head track, which is um, called Harry Patch, which it is it is a really emotional piece of music. It, it, um, it's actually about the last World War I soldier in the UK who died. Radiohead wrote that song about him and it is, um, it, it, so it has this real melancholy to it, but there is also a hopefulness to it. Um, and it is one of my favourite sequences in in the film um and it is the story of the water returning you know after you know some fairly traumatic scenes before it but um you know there was the music is just such an important part and, and it really dictates the way these kinds of films are made and because they aren't ordinary documentaries they are you know designed from day one as concert movies they are designed as concerts as well because both films exist in in the live form with the Australian Chamber Orchestra as well as the the cinema form mm. um, and they're the same movie but they are quite different experiences um, and so collaboration is collaboration is you know it's an overused word but it is um, and it is one that's absolutely necessary in filmmaking And I would argue even more so in a project like this because you are leaning so heavily on on these other artists. And and I do think that the, I mean, the the Australian Chamber Orchestra are known to be, you know, the best chamber orchestra in the world. They really are world class. Um, They tour internationally. They tour nationally. And they are a group, a very small group of world class musicians. And that feeds into the level and the quality and the standard of, of the music. In, in these films and I really think it, it does a lot to elevate. Um, so I'm just really grateful to their tremendous talent. Absolutely. And um, I was just reflecting on when you're putting it together, I wondered what the dynamic is between the music, the narration and the footage and how you manage that in terms of what is responsive to what and what comes first or, you know, how do you manage that as a director? Yeah, look, it's actually probably the most challenging element of of making this film and, and also Mountain because, you know, classical music, you can't cut it up, but you can't just fade it out either. And so it's um, and and the fact that it is being commissioned and, and, and needs to work as a concert always needs to be kept in mind. So Richard is always the gatekeeper and the, the guardian of of his audience and how the, the project works for his audience. And I'm I'm sort of on the other side worrying about how it's going to work in the cinema audience who may be less classical music literate um, but not necessarily and so at different times and it works in different ways depending on the choices that we're making and the kind of music involved Um, but Richard had a very hands-on role and he had particular bits of music that he really wanted to use and sometimes that was challenging to fit with the length of certain sequences because you can't just pull the middle out of a beautiful piece of Ravel or Vivaldi. You know, you need to honour the the artist as well. So it, it's complicated and it's challenging, but ultimately that's the gig and that the partly that's the art form, if you like. It is to kind of to keep an open mind to what other people can bring and, and you know, 
I think I mentioned earlier that that amazing drone shot and I had this other particular piece of music in mind and I really didn't want to let it go. And in the end, Richard really convinced me and he was right and made the best idea win, if you like. And, you know, about half the music is what you call traditional classical repertoire and then the rest of it is more bespoke composition. So, you know, our relationship in that, those cues, uh, those music cues works in a more traditional way where we have the, the scene has been cut rather than us cutting to the other. It, it, we, it works the other way around and then and then Richard and, and other composers, Piers Burbuk de Vere is another composer who worked on the score and wonderful Australian composer and performer William Barton also wrote some original composition for the film. So we really had the kind of A-team of, of composers as well as then the wonderful Johnny Greenwood and the Radiohead. So those pieces worked in the more traditional way where they, they wrote to picture. So it just really depended on the particular scene that we were working on as to how that collaboration worked. Yeah, I know that we're running out of time, so I'm just going to ask you one last question which picks up on what you just um, referenced there. One of the beautiful tracks at the end of the film alongside the radio head one is called Spirit Voice of the Enchanted Waters and it was composed by William Barton and Richard Tongnetti. And William Barton is such a talented Indigenous musician and composer and I love I loved his contributions in this film. So I wondered if you could also just reflect on finally, because I will share this song after our chat here, um, what it was like working with William or having him involved and kind of providing that Indigenous and Aboriginal voice in the film, given that connection to rivers is so strong in Indigenous and Aboriginal culture. Yeah, that that was super important to us. And and um, the ACO, the Australian Chamber Orchestra, have a really long-standing relationship with with William, and and we were keen to, you know, recognise that you know Indigenous cultures around the world for many years have understood what it means to be good ancestors, what it means to look after our rivers and our landscapes for the downstream um, who are coming after us, and. So it was really great to have his contribution to the film, and and in fact the you know the moment where he came in to record that was probably my favourite moment of the entire process of making River, and he he had he came in and we had he'd been working on various ideas with with Richard and he had he came in and he said I've just watched the film and he said do you mind if I I just have a go at saying what it is that I want to say and I said that that would be perfect please and you know he he had a play around and and then we set off a a particular melody and and, you know a drone note for him and he improvised for 15 minutes about what his response had been to the film and what it was that it meant to him and and it was um I was in the recording booth with um with a few other people and we were all it's almost like no one could breathe, you know, it was just this kind of silence. And then at a certain point he stopped, he said, is that all right? Is that enough? And I kind of looked around the room and and everyone was in tears. Yeah. It was just, it was a really moving moment. Um, and to, to see another artist reflect on what you've created in such a way, but he just said exactly what it was that needed to be said for, because it's the final cue in the film and it is, incredibly special and um you know I, I felt just privileged to to be there and witness that moment because it really was um 
you know, one of those moments that you, they don't happen very often. Thanks for sharing that story. I think it really does translate in the film that it is so moving. Um, So I do appreciate you taking the time to share that story and all these others with us, Jennifer. And I really do congratulate you and all of your collaborators on this film, River, which is released on March 24 and is um, directed by yourself, Jennifer Peedham, and written by Robert McFarlane and obviously so many other wonderful contributors that we've been discussing today. So thank you for taking the time to join me today and um, all the best. Thanks so much, Amy. It's been great to chat. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. And you are tuned in to 3 Triple R FM, 102.7 FM on your dial, streaming at rrr.org.au and also on the radio, that old school thing, 102.7 FM. It's really lovely to be with you on this Tuesday morning and it's a little bit overcast at the moment. Um, so we'll see how the rest of the day pans out, but I'm feeling very contemplative, uh, especially after that last chat looking at rivers And now we're going to be talking on a a similar theme, uh, looking at water, but particularly the history of swimming, a cultural and personal history of swimming. I'm speaking now with writer James Bradley, and he's written an essay for the Sydney Review of Books called Full Body Immersion. And you may be familiar with James's work. He's written many books. Uh, Some of the more recent titles include Ghost Species, The Buried Ark and The Silent Invasion. And of course, James writes essays, as you would know, um, and as you will hear as we talk about this really beautiful essay. So uh, I welcome James onto the program. Hi there, James, and thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, hi, Amy. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And it's also great to talk to you, someone who I have technically known on Twitter for what feels like a lifetime, but have never spoken to verbally. <laughs> oh, it's weird that social media kind of intimacy, isn't it? Where you feel yeah. like you know people quite well, but you've never actually eyeballed them in real life or spoken to them. I know you're a real person. So yeah. <laughs> and I am too. Um, it is really interesting. And I mean, This essay came out uh, at the end of November last year and when I first read it, I was just struck with the complexity and the beauty and the depth of the history, the cultural history that humans have with swimming and how swimming has evolved and developed over time. Um, But you do start out this essay with your own personal perspective and that I think is really useful and and insightful uh, in particular because you say that you've been swimming for your whole life really and you can't remember a time when you hadn't been swimming. So I wonder is that the reason why you you decided to look into the cultural history of swimming? Was it because of your personal affinity with swimming and water? Oh that's a fascinating question. Um, Look it's funny isn't it because I I actually don't remember a time when I couldn't swim. I grew up in Adelaide on the beach in Glenelg. Um, We lived a couple of streets from the beach and I I say I can't remember a time when I couldn't swim but I do remember almost drowning when I was when I was about two or three because I fell into a hole by the jetty and went underwater and I actually remember it happening. I remember being really frightened but um, yeah I guess I guess there is something about swimming like I I grew up swimming when I was about 
19 or 20, I started swimming laps and doing that kind of distance swimming, which I should I should emphasize I'm not actually very good at. Like, I'm really <laughs> slow. One of the really depressing things about getting older, and because I swim in pools, is you can see, like I swim against the clock, if that makes sense. Mm. And what, I, what I've been able to watch over the last 20 or 30 years is my time gradually getting worse and worse and worse. <laughs> um, but, but I guess that kind of, there is something about, that movement into the water, that kind of relaxation of your body into that kind of liquid medium. And I think very much about swimming itself, the, the kind of regularity of it, that kind of sense that there's something very meta, meditative about it, which I find really fascinating and seems to me to speak to something really interesting about our kind of affinity with water and water as a kind of metaphor for thinking about all kinds of historical and geographical and cultural connection if that makes sense yeah yeah it does it seems very intuitive and also primal uh and i want to quote you back to you if you don't mind um at towards the beginning of the essay you write that quote to enter the water is not like passing into an alien medium instead surrendering myself to its weightlessness is like returning to something intuitive a way of being remembered below the level of language or conscious thought and i thought that really did sum it up so beautifully obviously but um but it does seem to put into words something that is very hard to pin down because it is a very unique experience uh, and also something that we do share with animals as well. And you do make interesting parallels as well between uh, humans and how we've evolved uh, physically and also with uh, mammals and, and other animals. So I wonder, could you share with us some of your thinking around that, the, the kind of like early discussions and writing that you have in the piece around um the, that deep affinity between humans and water, which you say is both deep and ancient. Yeah, and and it kind of is. I mean, we we spend the first nine months of our lives kind of floating in water. Our bodies are made of water. You know, um, you know, the salt levels in our body are very similar to the salt levels in the sea. You know, I mean, there is this kind of sense that we are we are creatures of water. I mean, there's that kind of wonderful expression, bodies of water, you know, I mean, and, and we kind of are bodies of water. But there's all kinds of fascinating stuff. There's a whole lot of really interesting science now about the effect upon mood, the effect upon cognition, the effect upon a whole series of things of being near water or looking at water or even just the colour blue. And, and some of that stuff is, you know, to be honest, I think there's a fair bit of kind of, you know, hippy-dippy Silicon Valley stuff behind some of it. But, you know, the, there is some really solid science demonstrating that, you know, the colour blue, the presence of water, you know, all of those things do incredibly powerful things to our bodies and to our minds. So there's this sense that we are connected to water in a very, in a very primal way. Triple R. Um, hi there, James. Now, we um, sadly lost you, but we did hear the start of your answer where you were talking about uh, mammalian breathing. So I wonder if you don't mind jumping back into your answer and um, and talking to us about what you were going to explore. It's good that we're getting abrupt dropouts when we're talking about flow. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that idea of flow is great. And it's another one where you see one of these kind of liquid metaphors. I mean, we kind of think about imagination and creativity in terms of 
of liquids in terms of flow, in terms of, you know, those kind of watery metaphors are there again. But I was talking about that, I guess, the kind of physical stuff. So the, the decision is there's something they call the mammalian dive reflex, and, and free divers use it. it. They call it the master switch of life. And it's a thing where once you go under the water, your body actually undergoes a series of automatic kind of physiological changes and the blood starts moving in from your extremities to your core to kind of protect you as you go as you go under the water and to kind of preserve life. And you know, and there's other other fascinating stuff. There's there's this kind of hokey theory from the 70s called the aquatic ape theory, which you know still drives paleontologists insane. I was reading a I was reading a very cranky when I was doing research for this piece, I was reading a a piece by a by a paleontologist who studies human evolution. It was just, you could kind of hear her head exploding when she wrote this piece. But, I mean, the aquatic ape theory was developed by a, an English writer, and essentially it says that there was an ape in our – there was a, a human ancestor who went back to the water, and that's how we lost our body hair. That's why we've got so much subcutaneous fat. You know, there's, there's kind of – it's a kind of explanation for various kinds of physiological things in our bodies. Now, it's not true. You know, that there is no evidence for this, um, although people love the theory. But but what's interesting to me about the theory is that she, the woman who developed it, um, Elaine Morgan, one of the reasons she wanted to, to talk about the idea of the aquatic ape was that it seemed to her to be a counter to that kind of idea that we were hunters on the plains hunting animals, you know, these kind of Tarzan-like figures. And she kind of – and it pushed you back to a kind of more liquid, more cooperative, you know, a, a different way of conceiving of human evolution. I think what's really fascinating is when you read someone like, you know, David Graeber writing about the kind of origins of human culture, you see there again this kind of push away from these kind of highly hierarchical, highly male, highly patriarchal kind of ideas of – of human evolution. So there is something really, you know, that, that kind of aquatic ape theory at a kind of scientific level is bogus, but as a as a kind of social construct kind of pushes you towards some slightly more interesting places, I think. Yeah. It's interesting that in this essay you also draw out the ways in which close contact with the water has shaped human beings. Um, and there's one really interesting example about the Bajau people of Southeast Asia who made their home on the waters of the Philippines. Um, and I was really surprised to hear about how they've kind of had these series of genetic adaptations that apparently equip them to spend more time underwater. So it was really interesting to me to even have this idea that humans, although that theory you mentioned before you know, it's clearly not true that there are other ways that humans have been more um, concretely shaped by water. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting study. What it does is there seems to be an alteration to a gene amongst that population, and they seem to have a higher level of particular thyroid hormones. And it means that their spleens get bigger, and that means that they can basically hold their breath underwater for longer. So there is a kind of a genetic alteration within that group. That's not the only... One like that, I, I think there's a, there's a gene from Denisovans which turns up in Tibetans and seems to be associated with their capacity to kind of operate on lower levels of oxygen to a lot of other people. So, I mean, there, there are those kind of genetic tendencies within particular bits of the human population. Now, I should say that I think 
I think there's been a bit of an argument about the kind of ethics of this particular study. I mean, I, I don't think it's an argument about the results of the study. I think it's an argument about the um, about the way the study was conducted. You know, there, there was not um, sufficient consultation with the people involved, I, I understand. So there, there are some kind of question marks sitting over it. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, the, the, the kind of the sense that you might actually be altered by long association with the water. There's also really fascinating um, – there's people they call the sea nomads who, who live in the Andaman Sea, and they seem to be – you know, they, they kind of – right from a very early age, they're diving underwater all the time, and that's kind of how their their kind of society is organised. Um, and and they seem to develop the ability to see underwater. Like, they, they actually – there's a kind of an effect upon – an effect upon the on the way on the kind of shape of the eye, so that they, you know most of us need a mask to see underwater. But a lot of people, Moken people, seem to be able to actually just see underwater, which is really really interesting. So yeah, I mean that, that kind of physical stuff is very interesting. But I mean I, I wouldn't want to push it too hard. Does mm. that make sense? I mean I think once you're getting into the land of of kind of talking about particular populations and genetic flows within them, it starts getting to get a bit tendentious. But there is some evidence around about how people and the spleens. Mm. And we're talking obviously about pre-colonial times and you do also address the idea of how certain populations, you know, might have migrated across to different lands. And, of course, you know, one other obvious example is Australia's Indigenous peoples who uh, migrated through Indonesia over 60,000 years ago and you were, you know, talking about the ways in which they may have made that journey. Um, and obviously there's a lot of speculation around that as well as the Pacific um, peoples and, and that kind of thing. But I wonder, you know, when we're looking at those uh, Indigenous cultures, what do we know about their relationship to swimming? Well, um, so one of the things that's important to preface this by saying is that lots of those Indigenous cultures have quite different accounts of where, you know, I guess where they came from. Um, but what we know from the archaeological evidence about Indigenous people in Australia is they made their way down through the kind of land bridge from uh, across Indonesia, you know, uh, 60,000 years ago or so. Um, now, the problem with that land bridge is that it didn't go all the way. So although you could kind of walk for large sections of it, eventually there's a big bit that you have to get across. Um, and there's a couple of different routes that they could have taken, but, but essentially you've got to cross about 100 kilometres of sea. Um, and you simply can't do that without boats. Um, and the evidence seems to be that they did it lots and lots of times. It wasn't an accident. You know, it was a, it was a deliberate migration. Um, and it's very difficult to imagine that people could have had the kind of reasonably sophisticated maritime technology that could let them do that if they couldn't also swim. I mean, over in the Americas, you see the same thing. I mean, the movement of people into the Americas seems to have been down what they call the kelp road. So because there were ice sheets sitting on on the continent, people moved along the coast and they probably did it by boat. You know, and, and we know that, like, you know, you, you can't have a kind of ocean-going culture like that unless people can swim. So we know they must have been swimming. We also know, you know, we can be reasonably confident that lots of the kinds of – that Homo erectus was able to swim because they were clearly using boats to travel quite long distances. Um, and and we know – this was fascinating when I was writing the piece – we know that Neanderthals were swimming. 
you know, because first of all, Neanderthals got to a series of islands out around Crete, which you can't get to without boats, um, but also because there's this fascinating evidence about the the ear bones of lots of Neanderthals who live near the coast. There's a thing called surfer's ear or swimmer's ear, which you get from repeated contact with cold water, and lots and lots of them have got it. And we also know that they were using particular shells which because of the the wear patterns on them had to be being taken from underwater. They have to be taken from two or three metres under the water. So we kind of know that they were diving down to get the shells and we know that they were catching things like dolphins and butchering them and seals. So, you know, we kind of know that Neanderthals could swim as well, which is fascinating. Mm, that is really fascinating. Uh, also fascinating is the ways that you weave in some of the imagery in this essay. And of course, one of the images that you share with the reader is a painting of swimmers in the cave of swimmers in Wadi Sura, um, the Western desert of Egypt. And that's um, the first direct evidence that we have of human swimming. Um, it's not really surprising, I guess, that artistic depictions are what are kind of, you know, a clear, concrete type of evidence that we might have of swimming. Um, but I was interested in, you know, the fact that, as you point out, that isn't necessarily, you know, on the coast. This is in a desert. And that's, um, I guess, quite funny in a way that that's where the first evidence um, of human swimming is found. Yeah. And, and the stuff in Whitey Sewer is amazing. It was, um, I mean, it, kind of trivia point it, it there's that amazing sequence in the middle of the english patient the michael andachi novel you know where they're in the kind of cave of swimmers and it, this is the cave of swimmers it was found in the 1930s by a by a hungarian um archaeologist called almasi and he's the kind of character that andachi based the based the english patient on um but but this cave has people swimming in it and it's in the middle of the desert like it's in the middle of the kind of up in the Gulf Kabir Plateau. So it's kind of between, um, uh, it's in southwestern Egypt. And, you know, at the moment, it's one of the driest places on earth. But, you know, 10,000 years ago, it wasn't because there's a kind of wobble in the earth's um, axis. And, and what that does is it creates this kind of thing where the Sahara gets wet and then it gets dry. And, you know, 10,000 years ago, the Sahara was full of water. It was filled with huge lakes and there were all these cultures there with people people who kind of caught fish and killed hippos and made pots and did all these amazing things. And they're the people who painted the swimmers. But then the kind of shift in the climate came and it dried up really quite fast. And so they're, they're completely gone. It's desert now. It's vast desert, but it was a green once. And not very long ago, you know, not very long ago, it was it was wet and there were people swimming there. And, and yes, as you say, it's the first direct evidence we have of people swimming. I mean, we can kind of infer it from all of these other things, but these are images of people swimming, and they're beautiful. They're absolutely mm. beautiful. Yeah, they they really are. And um, I mean, we go from that point, um, hearing about the first direct human evidence, and you talk about uh, the obvious fact that the Greeks and the Romans were very enthusiastic swimmers, and you know, many of us will be familiar with the idea of public baths. Um, and, you know, the the statues that we see celebrating the human form as you write. But also what is, I guess, really interesting to me is the fact that Europeans in particular um, abandoned the water as you write, often coming to regard the ocean in particular with fear and horror 
the reasons for this were complex, you say, um, but seem to have had more than a little to do with the rise of the church and its discomfort with the body. And I was just so struck by the fact that you could have, you know, as we've discussed, this very natural relationship with swimming and then uh, parts of human culture can impose this sort of odd um, cringe or, you know, dysregulation or disharmony with the idea of swimming in the ocean in particular and um, and how that can then affect, I guess, the way that history plays out. So, you know, could you talk a little bit more about the relationship that humans had, you know, that type of evolution where it's it seems to be wavering between something that's quite natural and evolving to something that's then, um, you know, a negative experience, something that people are feared and reluctant to, to participate in anymore, um, you know, and a little bit more about why that might have come about. Hmm. Oh, it's really, really interesting. So the Romans, yeah, the Romans loved water you know you've got baths everywhere they were you know all over europe there's these kind of cultures of swimming and bathing and 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 that's kind of everywhere but in europe as the roman empire kind of retreats and, and transforms into other things then kind of christianity takes over you have this retreat from the water so european cultures largely stop swimming and came in fact to often regard the water with with kind of horror you know and it's a little bit difficult to to understand why um i mean there seem to have been a number of causes um uh but you know there's this kind of sense that water becomes a place not of cleanliness which is how you know we think of it many cultures think of it but as a source of kind of filth and disease you know it's more where rats are it's where it's the miasmic, you know, it becomes a kind of, you know, it's also kind of suspicion and fear rather than a, a symbol of purity, if that makes sense. Um, and what that means is, and, and again, I suspect, although I couldn't actually find this out, that there is probably, probably what we're talking about here is a kind of wealthy people. This is the kind of, you know, I, I suspect that, you know, fishermen could still swim to be yeah. honest, but, you know, it's, it's very hard to know. But there is this kind of quite clear retreat from the water. And that doesn't change until in Europe, and that doesn't change until about uh, the 16th century when you suddenly get this kind of people talking about swimming again. There's a series of kind of books that come along um, and they start arguing that swimming should be part of the kind of education of young noblemen. It should be something that people learn to do. You know, and in, in England, there's a very famous book by a guy called Everard Digby, um, which is called De Art Natandi. And, and essentially, it's a kind of how-to book for learning to swim and why swimming is great. And, it, you know, it kind of includes all these amazing woodcuts about kind of learning to doggy paddle and float on your back and all of this kind of thing. But there's this kind of sense that it becomes the water again becomes a place that you might play, a place that you might, you know, kind of exercise, a place that you might kind of enter and not be afraid of. And, that you know, we might begin to think about kind of bodies in water in a different kind of way. Yeah, and you do write that Digby advocates four strokes in that book, breaststroke, backstroke, a form of side stroke and an exhausting looking doggy paddle. Um, and there are pictures of the woodcuts in this um, essay. And I mean, it does bring me back to what you mentioned in this essay, which is what is it 
that we mean when we talk about swimming. Um, and you say that for many people who swim regularly, the strokes we use feel intuitive. And we are familiar with strokes like freestyle, breaststroke, backstroke, butterfly. Um, but as you point out, you know, an example being butterfly, these strokes have been developed and refined over many years and they've been kind of evolving through many different people. And I guess the example of butterfly is a really interesting one um, with the double underarm stroke, you know, having three people potentially contributing to that development and then, um, you know, another individual adding the, the dolphin kick to it, and then finally a Japanese swimmer, Jiro Nagasawa, combining the two to create uh, the butterfly. I mean, that to me is mind-boggling that it's kind of developed over that way um, across so many different cultures. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and butterfly is a really clear example of that. The guy, the guy who you know invented as much as you can invent a kick. But, you know, the guy who did that was actually one of the guys who worked on the Manhattan Project. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's really fascinating. This kind of we think of these strokes as natural. Like we think of them as just, you know, so so for, you know, if you're a contemporary Australian, you, you tend to think, well, there's freestyle, there's breaststroke, there's side stroke, there's backstroke, you know, and doggy paddle and some other things. But, you know, they're the kind of strokes that we do, but they all have a kind of history. And so butterflies is really obvious because it was only really developed in the 20th century. Um, you know, but not only are there other strokes, there's a stroke that was very popular in the 19th century called the trudgeon stroke, which is this funny kind of sideways kind of with one arm stroke. And, and, and oddly enough, I actually remember old men doing it in the 70s. Like I, I, I saw it described when I was researching the essay and I couldn't think what it was. And then I saw a video of it and I suddenly went, I remember men doing that stroke, old men doing that stroke at the beach when I was a kid. You know, and it's this funny, funny stroke. It's hugely popular. But you have this kind of history. So, so one of the things that's fascinating is that Europeans, and, and swimming became huge by the 19th century in Europe, but Europeans only spoke, swam breaststroke. You know, there were no overarm strokes. And, and it's here that you see this kind of racialized history beginning to intrude because there was a view that breaststroke was a kind of elegant, gentlemanly, civilised stroke, whereas all of those overarm strokes that we now call freestyle were, were described as things like native swimming and they were associated with, you know, they, they were swum by Polynesians, they were swum by Native Americans, you know, they were, they were swum by Africans, you know, and they were not swum by Europeans. So there was this quite clear kind of racial divide and, and so they swam breaststroke and they were very powerful breaststroke swimmers you know um so the first guy to swim across the english channel you know, he did a breaststroke you know so i mean the, the, the very powerful thing i mean and there of course you see this kind of um, you know i'm talking about the kind of assumptions that go with swimming here but there you see it with australians we think we think all well, breaststroke's not a powerful stroke because our relationship with strokes in australia is incredibly gendered you know we think of breaststroke as a stroke that women swim therefore it's not as powerful as freestyle, which is what men swim. And you can see it at the pool. I mean, I swim at the pools twice a week, you know. You know, it, it's certainly not clear cut, but, you know, it is that thing where the strokes are very gendered, you know. Mm. And, and 
but you know, so you had this thing where breaststroke wasn't really swum until about the beginning of the 20th century, and you had the advent of something they called the the Australian crawl. You know, and it, that was developed by an Australian guy called Dick Cavill, who was a very famous, very famous swimmer. But the story runs that he saw a guy called Alec Wickham, who was a Solomon Islander who was living in Sydney, swimming at the baths down at um, Bronte. And and he saw him doing this overarm stroke, which was essentially what we now call freestyle. And they took that stroke and developed it and called it the Australian crawl. Now, the first thing to say there is that, you know, it's not actually the Australian crawl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's clearly the Solomon Islander crawl. So yeah. you, know, you have this thing where, you know, this incredibly famous stroke is itself a kind of act of cultural appropriation of some kind or cultural theft, which is really, really interesting. But you then have this kind of movement of those overarm strokes into kind of Europe, into America, and they become incredibly successful and incredibly popular. But, I mean, that kind of sense that there is this kind of racialized history sitting underneath the strokes is, is a very – is something that's quite interesting to kind of think about and consider. Mm. Yeah, I um I did put a picture to promote this show um, of Alec Wickham in that um, – combination of images uh, on our social media. So if people want to see a photo of the Solomon Islander Alec Wickham, who really was the originator of um, freestyle or the Australian crawl, but really the Solomon Islands crawl, um, then they can see that image. Uh, One thing that relates back to that idea of racialised um, divisions, I guess, and this idea of um, masculinity and racial, quote-unquote, purity uh, comes up in Nazi Germany as well. And also, I guess, the preceding years um, before World War II through films like Olympia by Leni Riefenstahl, um, which was really obviously... Um, I mean, it has so many layers to it, that film. It's kind of hard to know how to summarise it. But uh, it certainly is focusing on the body and um, a, a very specific type of human and idealising that form. And certainly um, swimmers feature, you know, quite heavily in that film. And you also um, draw out, you know, other types of um, cultural references from the 1930s around uh, swimming. So I wonder if you could... Share with us a little more about, you know, that racial um, element, particularly in the 1930s. I mean, it brought up for me images like Max Dupain's swimmer as well. And, you know, Australia has its own type of iconography of, you know, the beach swimmer and and the kind of um, male form, um, you know, wearing Speedos, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of iconography of the swimmer is really, really interesting. And you do see it kind of brought to its kind of peak in in kind of Nazi Germany, where there is this absolute desire to connect back to the kind of images of the martial swimmers of the tribes that the Aryans came from, but also this kind of, you know, the, the kind of bringing in of all of those kinds of ideas of Greek ideals of beauty and things like that from the statuary and that kind of thing. But you see the celebration of a particular kind of body, you know, and of a white body, you know. And and what's really interesting is if you, I mean, think about it now, all of our images in Western cultures of swimming, of surfing, 
of all of those kinds of things, they remain incredibly racialized. You know, all of the images of the beach are about kind of blonde beach bums. I mean, they're that kind of sense that the swimmer, the swimmer is kind of white, you know, and and you actually see that kind of developing through the kind of art and culture of the late 19th century and into the first half of the 20th century. And it does kind of reach a peak in in the in kind of Nazi Germany. You know, I mean, and you just have to look at, you know, look at the ads for Yams and look at look at all of that stuff. It's a particular kind of body that they're celebrating. And you see it, you know, Johnny Reese Muller, you know, becomes Tarzan, you know, and you know, he's a swimmer. It's a particular kind of body that we're celebrating, that kind of long legged, you know, kind of wide shouldered kind of body. So I mean and there is something intensely racialized about that kind of idea of the body. And and you see it kind of fading into well, fading to the kind of replicated today, where you have this kind of sense that swimming is you know, swimming, being able to swim depends upon having access to places you can swim. It depends on having access to swimming lessons. You know, it depends on a whole series of things that are basically associated with particular kinds of economic and racial privilege. And, you know, what you see is a very unequal access to that. So, you know, um, in America, I mean, I don't have the figures at my fingertip, actually, but I mean, in America, the the um, the yeah, um, in America, you you have a situation where you know only one percent of the forty thousand swimmers registered with USA Swimming are African American. You know, Black Americans drown at five times the rate of White Americans. You know, because they don't swim, they can't swim. You know, you have this kind of, you know, you have much less access to pools. In Australia, we have you know, a long history of kind of Indigenous people being restricted from access to beaches, being restricted from access to pools, you know, um, you know, and, and here as well, you know, you have a situation where I, I, I think um, Indigenous Australians are, you know, almost twice as likely to drown as non-Indigenous Australians. Yeah, so you have this kind of sense that those kind of racialized underpinnings of kind of swimming continue on even now. Mm, it's so true. And um, to finish out this chat, James, um, as we've only got a minute left, but I just wanted to read out um, the last couple of sentences from your piece because um, it really was a, a great way of ending things is that you say, in that future, we all need to be swimmers to know how to survive, but we will also need to learn to recognise our connectedness, the bonds that bind us to each other, the way we are a part of a larger whole. And, um, yeah, I guess I really appreciated the way that you drew all these different um, parts of history, the cultural history of swimming together and, and I guess have really educated me and I'm sure many others listening to this and um, I hope that they can pick up, um, you know, either a printed copy like I've printed it out myself because I like reading on paper now that I've um, read all about how bad digital screens are uh, or they can do it on their yeah, their device. Um, but I do, yeah, appreciate your time today, James, and um, congratulations on writing this really beautiful essay, Full Body Immersion. Oh, thank you very much. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. And thank I you for having me. <laughs> oh, thank you. I've just been speaking with writer James Bradley and we've been discussing his essay for the Sydney Review of Books called Full Body Immersion, which is a cultural and personal history of swimming. 
I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.